Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Matthew O'Toole was a former civil servant who worked in the Treasury and 10 Downing Street. He has now served as the SDLP member of the Legislative Assembly for Northern Ireland in the Belfast South constituency since January 2020. Hello, Matthew. Hello. First off, Matthew, would you be able to explain a little bit about the Northern Irish Executive and how the parties across the political and national spectrum work together, just because other of our listeners are Welsh and, and won't know? I'm tempted to say they're in blissful ignorance, but I'll enlighten your listeners, Matt. The uh, institutions that exist in in Northern Ireland are a product of the Good Friday Agreement, which people will, I'm fairly certain, if they're listening to this podcast, have heard of, um, particularly in the last five or six years, we've heard a lot about it. And the Good Friday Agreement was, um, it was actually two different agreements, uh, one between the parties inside Northern Ireland uh, and the other between the two governments, if you like, the two sovereign governments of uh, the UK and Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, and the institutions that were created, well, there were multiple institutions, but the most prominent of which are the Northern Ireland Executive and the Northern Ireland Assembly. The Executive and the Assembly uh, are completely linked to one another. There can't be one without the other. There are some similarities with the way the Welsh Assembly is now constituted, in that obviously you're, you have to be a, a member of the Senate to be um, to be a minister. In the Northern Ireland context, there are 90 members of the Assembly. They are elected in five yearly elections, one of which is coming up in a few months' time. That's a, a reduction, by the by, on, on the previous number. There were previously 108. So there are 90 MLAs. Those 90 MLAs are elected by proportional representation, single transferable vote. Then the Northern Ireland Executive is composed of uh, mandatory power sharing, meaning there have to be um, uh, a plural, there has to be a plurality of designations, have to be both unionist and nationalist represent, rep- represented, and indeed uh, in the current um, executive and an executive for the last 10 years, as well as unionist designated politicians and nationalist designated politicians. There have been people who designate as neither or other as the specific designation. The provisions of the Good Friday Agreement mean that um, at the minute, the, f- the first minister and deputy first minister have to be, uh, they have to be from different designations. The idea of having a mandatory power sharing, as it were, is to is because it's a response to, I suppose, the context of the first half century of Northern Ireland's existence post the partition of Ireland, which again, listeners may know, happened exactly 100 years ago. Um, well, 100 years ago last year, uh, in 1921, and the first 50 years of that were effectively single-party rule in Northern Ireland, which was led to a significant amount of systemic discrimination um, against people who were largely you know, um, from an Irish nationalist or, or, or Catholic background. Those are uh, imprecise and slightly unfortunate terms to have to use, but they're kind of inescapable. And so a system of mandatory power sharing was deemed to be, and I think rightly deemed to be necessary when coming to an agreement in 1988. So we have a, a form of mandatory coalition. It doesn't have to have all five major parties. There are more than five parties in the Northern Ireland Assembly, but the, the ones with substantial significant numbers are, fi- are five of them. That's the DUP is just about the largest party, uh, or was just about the largest party at the last election. They've since uh, stripped a couple of their members away through attrition and taking the whip off people, followed by Sinn Féin, uh, followed by ourselves, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, followed by the Ulster Unionist Party, then followed by the Alliance Party. Um, I won't give you a press on all those parties, but um, all five of those parties are represented in the Northern Ireland Executive currently. So, Matthew, you became an MLA in 2020 when you replaced Claire Hanna when she became an MP, but you did so through co-option rather than a by-election. Would you explain why you weren't elected through a by-election? Uh, yeah, I should say it wasn't a, a, a choice. I would, I would have uh, happily stood for election and indeed to 
to reassure any of your listeners who think that I'm desperately undemocratic, I am going to stand for election in May. So I, I will invite the electorate to make an honest man or an honest MLA out of me. The co-option system exists, uh, I suppose, in part because we have a multi-member, we have multi-member seats, which is different from m- most other jurisdictions. Not the, the Republic of Ireland also has multi-member seats, uh, and in fairness, they don't use co-option. We have multi-member seats, but we also have the question of designation. I designate as a nationalist because my party has a believes in the aspiration to, uh, uh, you know, changing the constitution to uh, to a new Ireland. I, I could, I could explain in detail about the distinctness of our approach to that and the, and the historical, I guess, ethical and intellectual context to that position for us. But there are other parties that both designate as unionist and nationalist, and there are other parties who de- don't designate who designate as other. I, I suppose one of the reasons, and I'm not an, necessarily a defender or an advocate of the of the co-option system because it definitely has self-evident flaws, uh, is that in a situation where you have a relatively divided, contested society and a set of institutions which are designed to accommodate that society, then if you had, for example, people who, people who you know, resign or indeed pass away, as we've had, including in our own party, um, or, or leave office for whatever reason, you could have a situation which, because of designations, by-elections might be not a reflection of the plurality of a particular constituency, let's put it like that. To give an example, you know, there, there will be some constituencies where there is a significant unionist or nationalist vote but if there's a by-election a straight kind of first past the post by-election it would be very difficult for said designation to 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 win that election to win the by-election but if the person they're replacing is of that designation then you know then that all then then there are issues there as i said i'm not an advocate or a defender of that system but i'm just explaining some of the context as to why co-option exists i think it is worth saying my you know my view is the designation is used we've in my party there are Three out of 12 of our MLAs were co-opted. One of the, in two of those cases, it's because people were elected to Westminster and by law, you can't now serve, you can't have dual mandates anymore. That was a common thing in Northern Ireland politics you're not allowed to anymore. So MPs have to resign from the assembly. So that's two of, two of ours are replacement co-options. I'm one of those. And then the third one is because sadly, one of our MLAs um, passed away uh, in May, 2020. So, um, we, we only use them if we have to, as it were. Other parties are uh, use the, the co-option privilege a little bit more liberally and possibly slightly problematically, shall we say. So you mentioned there's an election coming up in a, in a few months in Northern Ireland. What do you think will be the major focuses of, a, of that campaign? Well, I think we've had quite a few elections in the last number of years, but actually this is the first assembly election we've had in five years. So uh, since the last assembly election stage, we've had uh, two different UK general elections to give you a sense of, and obviously those were, those happened in quick succession, but there's a number of things. Clearly the post-Brexit context is, uh, has been a very big issue. For, it's the reason I'm a politician in Northern Ireland. I wouldn't be involved in politics. Where I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have moved back here to, uh, to, to be a politician had it not been for Brexit. Uh, so the question of Brexit its effect on Northern Ireland and people's uh, opinions on, and indeed their opinions on the protocol, which is one of the the main tool to to um, to, to manage Northern Ireland's position post Brexit, uh, will clearly be part of that context. I think, from my party's perspective, we're also keen that a significant amount of the context is a judgment on the leadership of the DUP and Sinn Féin over the past. 15 years. Whenever the institutions were restarted in 2007, it was one of the last things that happened in Tony Blair's premiership. 
the DUP and Sinn Féin had in the last couple of years before that become the two largest parties in Northern Ireland and they entered government together. They, with the exception of the of the three years where the institutions were down between 2017 and 2020, the DUP and Sinn Féin have, if you like, run the show. And from our perspective, they haven't run it very well. Now, it is true that for a significant chunk of that, ourselves and indeed other parties have been in the executive too, but both those two parties collectively have held a, uh, a majority of the seats and because they have the first and deputy first minister posts they control the agenda of the executive and they have and they lead it from our perspective they've led it very badly and leaving aside the traditional communal constitutional angst in northern ireland there are a huge whole range of areas where they have failed to deliver on um, on urgent things not least our economy we still we remain the most unproductive and underskilled part of our Part of these islands, and you, and uh, we, we have a, a crisis around our exporting of young people. We have underperforming public services, particularly in, in relation to health. The NHS is under strain everywhere, but uh, English and Welsh observers would be shocked at how bad they may be frustrated with NHS investment in those jurisdictions. They would be shocked at how bad things are in Northern Ireland. We have around about a quarter—that's one quarter—of the entire population on a waiting list. From our perspective, those are failures led by the DP and Sinn Féin. So we would like to focus. Uh, as much of the electorate, you know, as much of the attention as possible on that record of failure. You, you talk about well, the brain drain, in effect. You know, I, I know I've seen comments from you about how Northern Ireland should follow, you know, the Welsh government's lead at looking at the impact of the brain drain and how that can be fought against. Do you think that will be a? You talk about it there, but do you think it will be a really significant issue, not just in this election, but in future elections, if it's not solved? Yes, I think so. I think there are a couple of parts to this. So the Welsh government, I, I think Vaughan Gatton has, has specifically launched a, a you know a plan to address this. There's been no such plan from the Northern Ireland executive, in part because my view is that Sinn Féin and the DUP see a degree of advantage, probably in uh, in continuing to to export a, a significant quotient of young people, um, uh, but it poses real economic and societal challenges for us, whatever your constitutional perspective or whether you have no particular constitutional perspective. We, uh, our universities, we have two good universities here, although it's worth saying we don't um, have enough university places in Northern Ireland. So we probably, our educational uh, migration is higher than it needs to be at 18. There are some what are called determined leavers. I'm someone who left for nearly 20 years, so I'm not inherently down on people who leave Northern Ireland. But I think the problem is that we have far too many push factors and really not enough pull factors. Pull factors brought me back, which was quite quite unique. I was asked to become a politician here. Um, But for too many young people, those don't exist. There will obviously be the the pull of home in general and, you know, family ties. um, And there are lots of wonderful things about this part of the world, including, you know, nature and our amazing scenery and, and, and and lots of other good things. And there are distinct and relatively narrow, small areas of economic, signs of economic development, but not enough. And unless we um, have a proper plan to address the economic questions, but also the deeper societal and cultural questions that are keeping people away, driving them away and keeping them away, then I think it's just, a, it, it, it's deeply bad news for the society because um, you know we won't genuinely progress. As I say, progress in terms of the health of our society, the how our economy delivers good, high-value jobs for people, 
and, um, and, and, and by, by the way, an equitable growth as well. All of those things um, will get worse. And, 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 I, and I should say, the, the brain drain challenge, it's not simply about, well, there are too many middle-class kids leaving to go to university in England because they want to live in, they, they want to live in Leeds or Glasgow or Cardiff for a while. It's that structurally we are set up to export a significant number of people and keep them away. And that has, I think, a baleful effect on our society and our economy. And it makes it harder to, um, it makes it harder to do lots of things. It, it makes it harder, for example, to, to attract investment because you know, we, we produce lots of talented graduates and lots of talented school leavers who do technical training, but, but uh, of various kinds, but, but, but not enough of them have enough opportunity here. And, and then, of course, that reinforces the, the, some of the issues we have around investment. There are, as I say, positive signs and, and I'm not going to be doom and gloom, but, um, but I think it's a real challenge. Going back a little bit to the sort of more political maths, if you will, of the whole of the upcoming election, I think the last year has seen a real difficult polling outlook for the largest part. Well, at the moment, the largest party in Northern Ireland, the UP, you see their votes splintering off to parties like traditional unionist voice. It, it creates the impression, at least from the out, outside looking in, that you may see for the first time ever a, a Sinn Féin first minister. Do you think that is, in fact, likely? And if it were to happen, what do you think the impact would be to the politics of Northern Ireland? Well, I'm going to do something which is maybe not the dumb thing on a podcast. Matt, I'm going to completely challenge the premise of your question. Please do. There has been a Sinn Féin first minister for the past 15 years. It's important to go back to the context of what happened in 1998 when the good friday agreement was negotiated it was clear there was going to be a because power sharing was going to mean the two major designations would designations unionists and nationalists would split a joint office at the top they would have joint ownership over the running of the government there was a request basically from david trimble that the largest party or I think it was the largest designation. I always forget the, the, the precise chronology of this. Either the largest party, the largest designation. Effectively, he wanted to ensure that his party would be able to say that they had that he was first minister and that the nationalist governing alongside them would be deputy first minister. Now, we can make a judgment about the uh, what that reveals about a, a mindset or about a... Uh, or about a set of, uh, you know, a set of principles or a set of uh, a perspective on the history of Northern Ireland, but that's that was the request. Now, with that, did not come any substantive difference in the power, like none. It's very important to be clear about this. The first and deputy first ministers are literally exactly the same role. It's just that one has the word deputy in front of them. It, it, so it, it is purely symbolism. Now. It is true to say that for the two, both the two biggest parties, that piece of symbolism matters. Both of those parties are parties who have a track record in profiting from, frankly, sectarian angst. This is a unique society. We, there is a, not just division, but there is a history of tension and, uh, and angst over communal affiliation and communal power relationships, frankly, not to be tedious and you know rake over Irish history as politicians here want to do, but bear in mind Northern Ireland was created because of a, of a decision to create a jurisdiction with a durable 
Protestant unionist majority. So that psychology has always been there of, you know, trying to manage people's feelings of, of, uh, of, of how, how, can we, how, how can I put this diplomatically, of, um, of, of feeling secure, shall we say. And so that's why you have this thing called the first and deputy first minister. They're no different, substantially they're no different. So that's why I correct the premise of your question. There has already been a Sinn Féin first minister. Indeed, we have amendments to a piece of legislation currently at Westminster to abolish the deputy first minister thing and just call them the first ministers because that's what they are. One cannot sign a letter without the other. One, Like a letter cannot be sent. You can't send a letter as first minister. It has to it can only come from the first and deputy first ministers. So that's important. But there is a degree of symbolism there. And that symbolism, what's interesting is because of the symbiosis of those two poles and those two big parties, Sinn Féin and the DUP, they will both profit from pushing the um, line that they're trying, they're going to be first minister, those awful Sinn Feiners slash nationalists, or, and look at the awful DUP, they're, they still have this supremacist mindset. They can't cope with someone who's not a unionist being first minister. And, that, and, 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 and there's an emotional appeal to both of those arguments. We're not going to obviously play that game because uh, I think it's fraudulent, sectarian, and I think it lets down, um, it, it distracts from, re from obviously real issues. I mean, we are not a party that is silent or indifferent to the question of the Constitution, but we are a party of the centre-left that believes in social justice and delivering on urgent priorities in addition to engaging with constitutional questions. So we will try and avoid that, uh, allowing that to become the dominant question of this election. We'll get into Brexit and the effect that's had on the sort of sectarian tensions in Northern Ireland in a bit, but there has been a, a ramping up of tensions, at least from the outside looking in. Do you think something as symbolic as the title would have some impact on the ability to form a, an executive perhaps after May's election? I mean, we've, see, we've seen, like you said, in 2017 to 2020, the executive fall apart because of the cash for ash scandal and questions of whether it would fall apart over things like an Irish Language Act in recent months. Uh, I mean, you're definitely right. That these, these questions are, there has definitely been a ramping up of tension over the past year, particularly around the protocol. And I mean, there is a history within unionism of profiting from and um, stoking up a sense of siege and embattlement. That is a history which goes back more than a century. You know, it is a, it is a pretty structural part of politics here. For better or worse, so it, it exists. That's why why I've been so my party's been so hostile to what the British government has done over the protocol over the past year, because rather than try and respond to concerns, including some you know legitimate and I'm not going to dismiss them concerns from unionists about being in a separate um, or having separate rule customs and regulatory rules on goods, it is just on goods. Uh, in relation to, to the protocol, rather than try and unpack and address those concerns and indeed address them practically by agreeing a, a concluding an agreement with the EU on sanitary and phytosanitary standards, uh, aligning, you know, rather than indulge fantasies about diverging from European standards in order to practically avoid east-west divergence, rather than doing those practical things and address head-on the concerns of people and communities what they've sought to do is inflame and lean into the um, some of those concerns in a way which is pretty shocking. It's pretty evocative at times of 
you know, some of the darker moments in British and Irish history when conservative governments have profited from stoking up uh, anger in, uh, as it were, loyal Ulster. And at times it's been deeply, deeply concerning and uh, shocking to watch from this British government. You wouldn't expect necessarily anything more from a, jo- a Johnson-led government, but it's still been pretty shocking uh, to see some of the ways in which, for example, they have talked about instability, political instability in Northern Ireland, talked about it as if it was that they were seeking to profit from it, that there was some something legitimate about bus burning or petrol bomb throwing, or that there was some, you know, or that the uh, that kind of um, thing could be, uh, you know, that there was some kind of practical customs solution which is going to uh, address those concerns. I'm afraid all that was pretty disreputable and shocking. Um, but you're right, tensions have uh, heated up. It's also worth saying that the DUP, you know, it's tragic for a lot of those communities. Those of the communities with the, where there were was rioting last spring are very deprived. They have. They're also communities that have experienced deindustrialization in some cases. It's in no way to lessen or diminish their unionism and their sense of national identity and that being a key determinant in their politics. But they are also uh, in places where, in educational terms, their kids have been failed. Uh, and they have poor health outcomes and they have, you know, the DUP have been the biggest party in those areas for decades now. And then they've run government for the last decade and a half. It's pretty obvious that they have failed to deliver meaningful difference to the lives of a lot of working class loyalists. And um, that's a large part of the reason why there's such alienation and such frustration in those communities. And um, what the DUP in particular have fed them a diet on, it, uh, fed them on a diet of is, you know, communal angst and sectarian strife in which keep voting for us to be the top dog over the shinners um, while not really addressing their the, the actual needs of these communities and simultaneously pitching themselves as a effectively a kind of clientelist party of a kind of crony capitalist clientelist party who will kind of operate the Northern Ireland economy on a kind of lowest common denominator basis. All of those chickens are, I think, coming home to roost. On the issue of the, of the protocol, Again, at least to people in Britain, it, it does appear that the discussions around the protocol are happening either between the UK and Irish governments, or perhaps more worryingly dependent on your perspective, exclusively, exclusively within the Conservative Party. Does the future of the protocol continue to worry you? And does it feel sometimes as though it's something that's being done to Northern Ireland rather than something that that Northern Ireland is intrinsically involved in? The answer to all those questions is probably yes. I think, like, the politics in Northern Ireland clearly matters to the, in the, to the, the context of, of the protocol. There would not, it's first of all worth saying, there would not have been a protocol, um, and the protocol was what was left after other, probably more attractive options, including the original backstop, were taken off the table. I would go into like laborious details to why other options were more attractive, but they were sort of, you know, they were kind of repeatedly taken off the table. And what you're left, what you're left with, was a protocol. But the protocol would never have been agreed were it not obvious that a majority of people in Northern Ireland wanted some kind of special arrangement for Northern Ireland. Uh, that has been the consistent verdict at elections ever since Brexit. And of course, um, it's a point that can't be repeat, repeated often enough. Northern Ireland voted against leaving the EU, so so there was always going to need to be a set of special arrangements for Northern Ireland. The protocol, in practical terms, is 
clunky and in practical terms it was difficult it was always going to be difficult to implement an entirely new arrangement in relation to goods and a couple of other things but large it's not every area of economic activity by any means it's in relation to moving goods it, it landed with a bump with basically no notice in late early 2021 because the uk government kind of denied its existence tried to obfuscate tried to kind of like deflect and then, and you know, didn't agree a future of the FTA, the Free Trade Agreement, with the TCAs, it's called the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, until days before the end of the year. So all of that meant that it, in practical terms, took a while to get used to for businesses. Many businesses are now getting used to it. In fact, there was a survey out today for manufacturing businesses showing how well used to it many of them are. But not only are they used to it, as well as dealing, like they'd obviously rather that you didn't have to, there weren't new processes on moving goods in from Britain, but many businesses, including manufacturing businesses, have this advantage now, which is access to both markets. So that um, that is a good thing. And I, our party has been talking a lot about that, particularly in the context of what I mentioned earlier, which is Northern Ireland's relative lack of competitiveness and the lack of productivity and the lack of skilled jobs to keep young people here and to and to and to, to um and to give them opportunities here. So so there are in relative terms pretty good things about the protocol as well as things which need to be ameliorated and made easier. A lot of what happened over the past year was total hysteria from unionist politicians who were exaggerating both the practical consequences, but also the political response. At no point has the response on the streets ever been more than a few dozen people. Like there maybe a couple of hundred at the most. You're talking in the hundreds at the very most. Whereas if you look back over the history of Northern Ireland in the last, well, just take the last half century. Uh, in the 1970s, the original power sharing agreement, the Sunningdale agreement was brought down by tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of, of, of unionists taken to the streets. In the 1980s, there were tens and indeed possibly, I think even possibly hundreds at that time as well, of thousands of unionists who took to the street over the Anglo-Irish Agreement. In the 1990s, tens, sometimes even hundreds of thousands appeared to take the streets over the Drum Cree protests around curtailing a particular Orange March and indeed around the Good Friday Agreement. There were thousands again out in the flat, now, sort of possibly gradually lessening numbers. This time, there have been barely hundreds so I'm afraid the revealed truth is that not that many people in societal terms care very much about the protocol or care that there are people who probably dislike it in theory, other people who think it's it's bureaucratic and clunky. But the truth is that there is not mass mobilization against the protocol and there never has been. It has, however, suited certain unionist politicians to pretend that there has been and to say that there has been. And indeed, it's been suited the UK government when, when the UK government has decided they wanted to take a provocative stance against Brussels for their, for whatever reason, it suited them. Now, that's what I what I mean when, I'm talking about, when I talk about playing the orange card in a fairly chilling way. At times, that as an ex-UK government official, I've been fairly appalled and chilled to see some of that. Now, thankfully, it appears some of that has died down a little bit. David Frost is out of the picture, for example. But all of that means that you know that that context has been very real in terms of the rhetoric of the debate, less so in terms of the actuality of street politics and the opinion polls, to be honest, Matt. But there is a big. But you're you're right. There are there is a potential symbolic moment, which is uh, around Northern Ireland, and, uh, and this does feed into. I guess to come back to your question, this does feed into probably a sense among some people that there is a symbolic shift happening. Northern Ireland is not now a society of a minority and a majority in constitutional or uh, confessional terms there are three minorities and the there are permeable boundaries uh, at each sides of those boundaries there is a there are people who are unionist 
of different kinds of unionism. There are people who are analysis of different kinds of unionism. And then there's a middle of people who don't designate as either and who are, to a greater or lesser extent, agnostic on the, on the main constitutional question. And that middle bit is, is in my view, more permeable. You know, they're, 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 those are some of the people who they either don't designate, but they might still have a view on the constitution. But they, so, um, but there is no when Northern Ireland was created, when Ireland was partitioned, there was a decisive and clear majority of the population here who was not just in favour of the union, but decidedly in in favour of the union and 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 strongly. So, um, I won't go through labour the history of this place, but um, the, the truth is that that doesn't exist anymore. For people who want to change the constitution. They sometimes act as if, uh, and these are people who are broadly on the same side of the debate as me, they don't act as if there's not a new majority for constitutional change overnight. There isn't. If, there, if such a thing's going to happen, a, a coalition will have to be creatively and um, carefully built because there isn't a majority for change yet. In identity terms, there is no community majority, and I don't think there ever will be again. In British politics, and I mean... Obviously, you, you'll be well aware of what I mean by that, but for the benefit of our listeners, I mean on the island of Britain. The yeah. Apart from discussions around the protocol, the question of Brexit seems to have realistically left a lot of the political discussion, even though there are quite obvious detriments that, derive, that come straight from that decision of the UK to leave the EU. Why do you think British politicians and the British media are less willing to talk about Brexit? Is it just because everyone is bored of it or because of the political side of things? Are political parties now scared that acting as though they're against Brexit is, uh, is you know, could be potentially catastrophic to them politically? It's a good question. I, mean, I think it's kind of multi-layered, like lots of these things. I think when you, when you talk when you say British politics, I think I, I'll try and disaggregate it along three lines uh, and I'll try and be uh, concise one, there is the debate at West. There is the kind of UK, the kind of the Westminster debate, in which obviously the Scotland Wales and to a, to a, and in the kind of occasional bit part in Northern Ireland, but particularly you know, Scotland Wales are are, are players. But, but we're talking about the the kind of Tory versus Labour Westminster level debate, and the reason why it's less talked about there is a very obvious one, which is that Labour is not Labour's policy is is not to. Um, rejoin the European Union or to countenance that um, for a very long time. That's for obvious political reasons, which we probably don't need to go into here, but it is worth saying that it's a product of the fact that the vast majority of people in the United Kingdom live in England. And that's such a hugely determining factor about this state, the UK, and British politics that you, you can't mention enough. So that's point one. Point two is... That's why that's you don't hear it as much in Prime Minister's questions or in the Today programme or on the pages of the of, of British newspapers or on kind of UK political Twitter uh, that much. Although Brexit never really leaves it, but the kind of the, the actual binary in out question, you're right, has gone away. That's why at that Westminster level. Number two is the question of Brexit as a practical, the practical outworkings of Brexit, which is somewhat separate to the question of in, out, remain, leave. The practical outworkings of Brexit, I think, has been a political challenge. Whether it's whether journal, whether the media or politicians choose to foreground the Brexit context or not, and the practical economic consequences obviously go across a whole waterfront of areas. You know, for example, the migrant, um, you know, people drowning in the Channel. There's a Brexit context to that, obviously. When if you have a, um, you know, if you have removed yourself from the context through which 
irregular movements of migrants across the continent of Europe is managed, as Britain has, then that has a context. In economic terms, retailers, businesses in on the island of Britain are now finding, you know, have now more supply chain disruption because certain processes exist at the British, i.e. the GB border, that the UK had waived until now. They still haven't complete, they're still not completely in face it. They're not completely enforcing a border that the World Trade Organization would recognize as a properly enforced trade border, but it's a bit more enforced than it has been since last January. A whole range of other areas, um, you know, the, the the challenges facing universities trying to get involved in research partnerships, the roaming, roaming charges, which cropped up the other day and the UK government, Boris, celebrating business, you know, O2 and Virgin for not imposing charges. And just the broader economic questions, which will come up again and again and again, whether they whether they become foregrounded as sharp issues, it's hard to tell. But I think what's being revealed about the economic and practical impact is that the the model that was used to describe Brexit, which is as a deep and very damaging, but relatively slow moving relative to the kind of R by R Twitter kind of maelstrom. That's exactly the right analogy for Brexit. It's a very deep, very severe puncture that's letting the, it's actually, it's quite a fast puncture, but relative to the day by day, R by R, you know, Twitter battle, it's, it, it doesn't appear, but it is happening all across. And so I think it hasn't gone away in that sense. And then the third point, trying to be concise, is the, is the Brexit union context. And that is having a, will have a particularly sharp impact in Scotland. Part of the reason why uh, it is, and, and and I think it hasn't gone away in Scotland because it will be the and, and North Scotland or Northern Ireland. But Scotland, Northern Ireland are fundamentally different. I'm always as Wales is fundamentally different, but Northern Ireland is particularly distinct from other parts of the UK for many of the reasons we've already talked about. That's part of the reason why that that it, it, Brexit has gone away it, it, as a sharp issue. It, it, it's gone away as an immediate debate sense because the Scottish government cannot re-enter the European Union. Scotland's not independent yet, but it hasn't gone away because it will remain a the most stark example possible of the union not actually really being a union of equals. I don't say that as a kind of, you know, grievance-laden nationalist opinion. I say it as a clear statement of fact. What is called the union is in fact a unitary state with certain levels of administrative devolution and distinct national cultural differences but the UK is a unitary state. It is not like the European Union. There are there is no council of ministers uh, in which Scotland or Wales or indeed Northern Ireland can operate a legal or even a political veto. So, for in terms of Scottish independence in particular, Brexit will remain the stark, shining example of how this isn't really a union of equals and Scotland's self determination in relation to its membership of the European Union was going to be. So, I think it hasn't gone away and it will return in that debate. There will then obviously be the complications of, in that subsequent debate whether and when there is a Scottish a second Scottish independence referendum about the nature of a, an independent Scotland's relationship with the European Union and then there will be other complicated questions to answer for both sides and um, so I think those are the reasons why it's gone away in the immediate or it appears to be in British politics aside from that it appears to be not in the debate on a day-by-day -day basis but the truth is it hasn't gone away at all and it's not going to go away because it is as i said it is such a fundamental decision by the uk state that it has permeated so many parts of the uk economy and the uk state that it will have an impact that doesn't mean people will be talking about it as brexit but they will be but 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 it will be a, a major thing going forward uh matthew it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much and good luck in your election in may thanks matt cheers Thank you.
And if you like what you've heard today, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.